Well, good morning, North Shore. Good. I'm lead pastor Scott Harris, and uh, I get to bring the message today. I'm super excited. Um, you probably noticed uh, my shirt, my Harley Davidson shirt. Uh, I'm wearing it for a reason, really two of them. Uh, today is our first annual uh, Bike Blessing Sunday. And if you don't know what a bike blessing is, is um, this kicks off the uh, ride season, kind of the spring. Even though on my ride today it was very rainy and cold, um, but uh, we're hardy here in the Pacific Northwest as bike riders. Um, and so uh, between services, uh, we'll have um, some of our friends from the CMA, uh, Christian Motorcycle Association. Uh, they'll be praying over bikes and riders just for safety, because it is a, a little bit of a dangerous journey, right? Um, how many wives out there have refused to let your husband have a motorcycle? There I see those hands. <laughs> um, uh, I love, you know, so I'm representing Harley Davidson today. I love it. I love the uh, the thump of that Harley motor. Love it. And so I braved today. And my, my fingers, you watch me doing this because they're just waking up. It was a cold ride. Uh, but I'm excited for uh, this event. And we'll be doing it from here on out every year uh, and just supporting that, uh, that hobby, uh, that passion. And so uh, uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, we are going to be in 1 Samuel 24 today. 1 Samuel 24. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, ushers, take a peek. I'm going to invite you to do something now. Um, they get those Bibles. Uh, you guys see who needs one as they come by. I'm going to invite you to stand up. I'd just love to pray for uh, this time, for you, for me. Uh, the Holy Spirit would have his way. It's that blood flowing too, right? It's probably really for me. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we love you. As we enter your word, um, we believe it's powerful, it's sacred, it's true, it's holy. And we trust that it'll do a good work. And so I pray that you be with me, that you would take my tongue, my mind, even my heart, and you would use it now. But you do the same. Take the heart and mind of each person that's here, whether they're online, sitting here in person. We'll watch this later. God, you do your work, a work that only you can do. So we come humbly before you together, asking you to speak to us and transform us into the likeness of your son, Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, all right, so we are continuing our series on the life of David. And the season we are in right now is what I called in your notes the mad chase. And I put mad in quotes. If you look at, I got a map up here for you. Look at this map here. So this is what we've been looking at, this, this chase. Uh, King Saul is chasing young David who is aging now. And this is measured in years, in decades. Okay, this isn't just a couple little moments, but he's been chasing him. And David, as we know from the series earlier, that is the anointed future king of Israel. But Saul is still on the throne. And he has grown jealous since David killed Goliath and everybody began to sing David's praise and look at him and begin to uh, say, hey, we think you should be the king. And Saul has grown jealous and uh, because of his sin, uh, the spirit of God left him and the evil spirit tormented him. Um, and this is the journey. See Bethlehem up there on the right? So Jerusalem's just a bit north of that. So you get a little lay of the land here. And we're going to end up over in, in Gedi to the right side there, right by the Dead Sea. Talk more about that in a few minutes. And the reason I put mad in quotes is because, first of all, Saul is mad. 
He has mental issues right now and spiritual issues. So you watch him as we've been going through this uh, really tough season in David's life. And I'm not sure about you as you watch and say, whoo, this is hard to, to read and watch and just all the highs and lows of David's journey right now. But it's because Saul is mad. He's crazy. He's up here. He's down here trying to kill David, recognizing David. It's just uh, very schizophrenic, if you would, right? But it's also mad because many times through this journey, uh, David has acknowledged and we've witnessed, he says, I've done nothing wrong. I've done nothing wrong. I'm innocent. And he still pursues me. And it's not just him. It's thousands of men. It's the majority of the Israeli armies after him. Because Saul's king. So it's this mad chase. So what would be the expected response? Last couple of weeks we heard some sermons that uh, before we answer the question, uh, look at the cost. For David personally, he was so in trauma that he had been wronged and so scared that he started acting out of character, acting like a madman, started lying. Tyler gave that message a couple weeks ago. It was a great message. If you didn't hear it, go back and listen to it. It's a good one. Um, and then Damien talked about the cost of community to David. Again, another great message last week. We see priests, right? 85 of them were killed. Whole city killed. David's family had to flee their town. All of the household of David's family had to flee Bethlehem where they're from. There is great cost in their pursuit of God. Us. There's a cost when we pursue God. As we've been going through this section, that's the question I've been asking our, our preachers and teachers to ask you. And you to consider, what is the cost? I was thinking back for us in pursuing God, Sandy and I. I mean, the first one that jumps out is time. Right now, there are millions of people still in their jammies. Right? They're hanging out. If it's football season, they get to watch it. They don't have to run around, don't tell me the score. You know, hopefully recording works and all that. Nope, they get to just watch it. They get to sleep in. They get to mow their grass, right? Time of just being here. And that's just on Sunday. I was reflecting on this. I was remembering the cost to my family. Being in a small town as the youth pastor on Orcas Island, raising our two girls. And they would never want to tell us this, but they'd tell us, and a lot of it we found out later, how people would ridicule and tease them. Oh, you're the Virgin Mary. Your dad's the pastor. Oh, I can't swear in front of you. You know, and these statements and these phrases and these comments that just hurt as we walked out. Certain places that they couldn't go, right? And these are good positive things, right? I'm saying, so, but it's just a cost. Like, oh, I'm different. We don't say this. We don't do this. We don't go there. There's a cost. What's been the cost for you? As you pursued God, what has been the cost? There's cost. It's hard. So what is the expected response? Revenge, right? Let's just call it what it is, revenge. The expected response is, what would you do if you were David? You're going to hurt my family, guess what? 
not going to be pretty. Mama bears out there, what if they hurt your family? It, it's going to get ugly, isn't it? I know, I mean, so we have to put it in context. That's what we're talking about here. So the expected response is revenge. And we've all been placed in moments where we felt revenge welling up. I was thinking back as a, a time as a football coach. One season I was the defensive coordinator and we were playing one of our rivals. It was late in the fourth quarter and they were taking it to us. They were up three touchdowns, okay. We couldn't do anything. And they're on about the 12-yard line with about 30 seconds left. And all of a sudden, they start calling timeouts. They've got the ball. If you know football, there's a, there's a um, gentleman's rule in that moment. And they kept calling timeouts to run play so they can score that, a, a fourth touchdown to get ahead of us. Uh, and we had to sit there, our kids, coaches, our families, and watch them rub our nose in it. In, in a public way. Um, so the next season, I became the head coach. And um, we're playing that same team, and we're pretty good. And we've, uh, <laughs> we've turned it around, so we are crushing them. There's a minute 20 left. And we're on the 15-yard line, fourth quarter, and we're up three touchdowns. I got a decision to make, don't I? Coaches are begging me. Players are begging me. I hear parents behind me yelling to me to do you know what. We all face moments where we, revenge wells up. We've been wrong. We've been hurt. So, well, I, you're not a football coach. Maybe that's never happened to you. But let me give something that probably fits our, our, all of us to a certain level. Road rage. There you go. You get cut off. That person does not use their blinker. They don't know the law as well as you know it. And they honk at you and they wave at you however they might wave at you, right? And, and what do you feel? Rage. You've been wrong. They don't get it. And it just wells up. And you start thinking like you shouldn't start thinking, right? And it lasts forever. You're driving down the road as mad as you can be. Because here's the thing. When we've been wrong. It's one of the more difficult times in our pursuit of God. We lose focus, don't we? Comes on us, righting the wrong. But here in this scene, 1 Samuel 24, David's going to show us a better plan, a better plan than revenge. So let's look at that together. 1 Samuel chapter 24, and a little bit of the setting, it's going to be set in a place called En Gedi, and here's some pictures for you here, En Gedi, uh, right in the middle there, you can see it's right, as I showed you earlier, it's on the western shores of the Dead Sea, okay, and so uh, right in that middle, you can see just all that desert hills in, the, they call that the wilderness, so if you've ever been over in Israel, the wilderness is not the wilderness like uh, Mount Baker wilderness, just so you know, the wilderness looks like this. Um, but in Getty is an oasis. It has a natural spring, one of the few natural freshwater springs around this area that is not a city. And coming down those valleys where the, the streams or uh, streams overflow, it is like an oasis 
It is, there's palm trees, it's lush. Uh, they've got, you see there in the lower left, ibex. These are like mountain goats. Um, and they're there, and it's a place that people would go to from all around. It's a place of survival, a place of life. Um, go to the next slide real quick, and you'll see that there's lots of caves. Up on the upper left is pro where they think the cave of David, right? So when we talk about the story that's looking out of the cave, you can see uh, another cave in the lower left-hand corner, some of the vineyards here, and you can see how desolate it is in the upper right-hand corner. And lower right-hand corner of that picture, you can see some of the uh, nice green trees there in that oasis in En Gedi. Okay, so this is where um, this is going to take place. Uh, and so let's look at first... Samuel 24, and I'm going to read the first seven verses. Verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel. These are like special forces. And went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rock, another name for Engedi. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. So they're back in the back. Verse 4. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not per permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. So what's going on here, um, David is running from Saul. And he goes to a cave in En Gedi uh, and then hides. 600 men. And then Saul hears he's there, so he brings his 3,000 men and pursues David. While there... Saul has to go number two, right? And I love this about our scriptures, right? I mean, where else do, you know, in, in great spiritual readings, we're going to be talking about number two. But we're going to talk about number two. Not a lot of detail, but it, it's what's happening, okay? So he's got to go number two, so he needs some privacy. Of all the caves around here, if you've been in that part of the, the country before and have been there a few different times, there's caves everywhere, well, he goes to the cave that David's men are hiding in the back of. And he goes in there. And guess what? The men know he's in there. An opportunity to get this dealt with, take care of this, comes knocking. Well, not knocking, but you know what I'm talking about, okay? Um, here it comes. What does David do? What is David's response to this? Because here's what's going on. His men are saying, go get him. Behold, and they quote something they've heard the Lord say. 
He is giving your enemy into your hands. This is the moment. This is the opportunity. So David sneaks towards Saul. Saul is in his position. He takes out his, uh, his outer robe, sets it aside, and is um, you know, taking care of his nature call. And David comes up, and he cuts off the corner of his robe. And it says immediately, his heart is struck. And I love this. I want to, it was asked in my life group this week. I said, boy, David is called a man after God's own heart. And if you've been hanging with this last few weeks, you say, okay, I'm not seeing it. Right? Where is it? See, what we, this is a window. David's heart is still there. It's sensitive. He's going through real life. We see the humanness of David. It's one of the beauties of this story for us. This is a, a human, a real person going through this tough situation. And we're going to see moments like we would handle them in his humanness. But we know his heart is for God. His trajectory is for God, even in these dark moments. And we see his heart. It says his heart is struck. And then he has regret. Why does he regret cutting off the corner of his robe? Uh, I think I, I need to teach you a little something so you understand the why. And I, I brought show and tell today. This is a, a prayer shawl, right? And, um, and in these prayer shawls, you know, and you, they're, they're, they're called um, uh, your prayer closet, the secret place, right? So in Israel, and there's some bigger ones than this, they wear these. And so what they'll do is when they pray, they'll go into their closet, go to their secret place, cover their heads, and in that secret place, remember, is where, sorry, 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 where um, uh, Satan can't get in. You're protected when you're in communion with God and praying. And so as a Jew, you'd wear these prayer shawls, these robes. Saul took his off, and David came and cut a corner. And these corners are very significant, okay? These hems, these corners, uh, these wings, they call them in Scripture. These wings, a Jewish person was demanded in Numbers 15 to have these tassels hang from these. And they have knots that represent the Torah, the five books of the Bible. Uh, and there's knots and multiplied that represent all the 613 commandments. And so as a reminder of them to be faithful in their faithfulness. Now, also, depending how uh, you design these, they were a representation of your significance and your power. Right? Remember for Jesus, um, when the uh, bleeding woman in Matthew 20 reached out and touched the hem of his garment, this is what she touched. And what it represented in Micah 4 uh, verse 3 is a corner, a ray of righteousness, the one that has the power and authority to heal. So when she reached out and touched this corner, she was acknowledging publicly that you are the Messiah, you are him. You're the one prophesies that can heal and have the, has the power. Well, others like to put big tassels to show their significance and their power and their authority. In Matthew 23, Jesus actually rebukes the Pharisees. 
says, you're running around with these huge tassels on the corners, on the hems. Who do you think you are? Because they've got these beautiful ones. Now go back to Saul. So Saul has his robe, and you, he, of course, has a kingly corners edge hem that represents he is the king of Israel, the top dog in all of Israel. Imagine how ornate that his hem, his corner would be. So when David reached out and cut it off, he was making a statement, that is not you. You're not worthy of that. He might say, I know I'm going to be that. You're not worthy to have this. So why did David regret when he cut this off? Because he was stepping ahead of God. He was getting in the way of what God was doing. He'd been so faithful. But in this moment, for just a, a, a quick flash, he took matters in his own hand and cut that. He's not worthy. Is Saul worthy? No, he's not. He's still there. David did not take revenge. Did not take revenge. He talked to his men and said, we're not going to take revenge. So as we go forward, I want to read the next chunk of Scripture and look at what can we learn, what lessons do we learn in these moments when you've been wronged. Someone, in a sense, I'm going to put this in quotes, deserves your revenge. Let's see what Scripture tells us, starting in verse 8. Before I do that, I just saw him else. I really want to give you an illustration. Um, I think it's an important one here of this. The significance, if you want just a picture that you would understand, it would be like a E1 in the military, right? Just an enlisted person sneaking up to the commander. I don't even know the ranks. Is that pretty high? I'm looking for my military people, okay? Um, and sneaking up and cutting his stripes off. All right? How many of you are military out there? All right. How would that go over for you? Pretty powerful statement, isn't it? And hold no stripes if you're not worthy of this. I am. All right. So that's the picture. So again, let's keep going here. I didn't want to miss that point. All right. Um, verse 8. David's lessons for us. Afterwards, David also arose and went out of the cave. And he called after Saul, my lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord. For he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you but my hand shall not be against you. Verse 13, as the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. 
After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? I mean, he just said, I'm not significant. I'm just a guy. 15, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So what do we learn from David? What are some lessons? And I, I put two lists together, the don't list and the do list. For the don't list, first thing we see here is don't follow people. Don't follow people. Saul listened to people. They said this, they said this, okay, must be true, let's go kill David. David did not listen to people. His men, go, go, go. And I, I get it, I understand why they, because their life's in danger too, Right? There's 600 of you and 3,000 of the best fighters in the land just outside the cave. You kill their leader, it all goes away. You take revenge, it's done. So they're telling David, go, go, go. Who does David listen to? Listens to God. He listens to God. And I tell you what, in our hard, difficult moments, when we've been wronged, who do you listen to? Tell you what, I've said, heard it said this before, that opinions, everybody has them. They're like armpits. Everyone's got one, even two, and guess what? They all stink, right? Everybody's got an opinion on what you should do. Who do you listen to? David listens to God. Don't avenge yourself. Don't avenge yourself. Look at verse 12. So clear. David knows that God does not want him to take revenge. He actually quotes Deuteronomy 32, 35. Moses' final song before he passes. In verse 35 in, in that song, it says this. It says, it is God's to repay. It is God's to avenge. He will take care of evil. And David knows that truth. And he quotes it. He says, God will take care of things. He will bring the sentence. Whatever is fit, whatever is right, he will avenge. It is not for us to do that. And understanding why God does not want us to avenge, take revenge, you have to understand the Hebrew word for revenge. And you guys understand that Hebrew is one of the, uh, the original language of the Old Testament. Uh, and I've heard it uh, said before that Hebrew is a poor language. And here's what I mean. Like Greek, New Testament, many, many, many words. Very sophisticated. So from English when we go there, we got to figure out, okay, there's lots of different words that tell the story. In Hebrew, one word means a ton of different things. So you have to really understand what is it getting at. The Hebrew word, uh, nakam, okay, nakam. Um, for revenge, also means this, judgment and punishment. Okay? So I take you to Matthew 7 to think about this. Do not judge, the Lord says. It's not for you to judge. So we are not to judge. We are not to take action. So when David says, it's not mine to avenge, it's because he understands this, that we are called as believers not 
to take revenge, not to avenge. Because here's the reason. First of all, we don't have the ability. We don't have the ability to judge purely. I'm a sinner. I fall short of God's glory. So do you. So who am I to look at you and judge you? I'm incapable of doing it. I am incapable of having the power that God has to understand your full story. You've heard it said before that hurt people hurt people, right? And it's true. Most of my sin comes from my own insecurities and hurts and my pains. And the same is true of you. And so when somebody wrongs me, I do not know their story. I don't have the ability to understand their story. So how could I judge them or punishment? Because I have no idea what's going on in their life. The hurt that they've experienced. The pain, what triggers whatever my actions did sparked in them. I don't have the ability to avenge. Only God. I don't have the awareness. Right? I don't have the awareness. I don't understand. I mean, I understand the scripture, Genesis 1.27, that we are created in the image of God, all people. But I can't really take a hold of that. I don't get it. What does it mean to be made in God's image? Theologians forever have been trying to grab that means this means, and they're, it's all good. But what does it really mean that someone is made in the image of God? And I'm going to punish that and I'm going to judge that? Who am I? I don't get that. I don't have that awareness. I don't have that awareness. So we are called not to avenge. Don't avenge. David is very, very clear. And my third point in the don't is really plays off of this is don't punish. Don't punish. Coming off that Hebrew word, the meaning of this, but seeing what David did. He did not punish. He did not sentence. Oh, could he have done that? Too easy. And two chapters away, if you want to read, not right now, um, you could read about what David had another shot at killing Saul and didn't. Did not do that. He did not avenge. He did not punish. So often, we punish, I punish, I judge. I just think about this. I was just thinking about this, and where does this play out? I'm not about to kill anybody, I don't think. I hope not. <laughs> um, but I tell you what, I'm about to pay my taxes. Yeah, there you go. Come on, right? Not to get political. I think I'm overtaxed. Right? I want to get revenge on that overtaxing group that's, and I want to take revenge. I want to punish them by cheating on my taxes. Right? No, right? A lot of pressure. Coworkers, right? How often do you get mistreated at work? And all of a sudden that person that mistreats you needs a favor. Or you see them making a mistake from afar and you got a choice. I'm going to punish them. I'm not going to tell them that they're about to screw it up and it's going to be a problem and they're going to look stupid in front of the boss. I will get back to them. I will punish them. You kind of see this getting in focus? We're not in a cave opportunity to, to kill a king trying to kill us. But boy, we punish and we judge. Think of your homes. Man, someone doesn't meet your expectations. 
They hurt you. What do you do? You punish them. So often with the silent treatment. Well, I, you guys know this, right? Just a little side note here. Relationally. There is not a louder thing you can do to somebody than give them the silent treatment. You're screaming so loud at them that you are not worth my time. You're not worth it. I'm not even going to talk to you. I'm going to ignore you. I'm going to needle you a million times. Right? Because you wronged me, you hurt me. So I'm going to punish you in this way. Because guess what? Silent people, we all have done it, right? So we're in this together. We know exactly the hurt that we're, we watch them. Wives, how uncomfortable does your husband get during silent mode? Oh, man, they, they can't sit still. Get a lot of work stuff around the house, right? <laughs> You're probably thinking, Scott, but it works. But hey, we can talk about that later, okay? Come on the marriage cruise. I'm going to talk about this. <laughs> but the point being is, we do that. Even church. Man, man, if you don't meet my expectations, if you don't do it the way I like, if you don't play that song I like, uh, if you don't quote that scripture right, if you don't, 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 I'm going to punish you by, I'm not going to serve. I'm not going to give. I might even, I'm going to quit. That's what I'm going to do. See, we are people that take revenge. This isn't just a cave story. It's a life story for all of us. All of us. Is we are not to punish. So what are some of the do's? What are some of the do's? Let's look at these ones a, a little quicker. So hang with me here. First thing is, do use the whole counsel of God. David's men quoted God. He's delivering Saul to you. Go for it. David, his knowledge of God's word and of God's character, he says, no, this is what God says. Are they, are they both correct? The answer is yes. Here's a hard thing. You can justify about anything quoting a single verse. We have to use a whole counsel of God. Because guess what? You are going to be faced with having to make hard decisions in relationships. I'm not happier saying every relationship you will never react to and respond to. Sometimes you're called to. But you want to do what God has to say. Not that quick trigger of revenge and self-justice. Right? Which leads to the next point. Do... Understand your influence. Look at what David did. David impacted these men that were intimately invested in the death of Saul in that moment. And revenge being exacted. How many years have they run? Feared for their life. Feared for their families. And David steps up. And doesn't take revenge. Talks to them. Talks them into not taking revenge. And we know that this will be the army of Israel someday. Not that day. Someday. Someday soon. So here is the point is, people are always watching you. When you're around anybody, whether you know them or not, whether that's online, in person, in a crowd, 100% of that time, you are influencing people to some 
level. And the more intimate that relationship, the greater the influence. The question we have to ask ourselves in these moments when we've been wrong, what are we influencing them toward? Toward Jesus? Toward ourselves? Toward their shortcomings and weaknesses? What are we influencing them toward? We have to ask ourselves and understand the power of our influence. Next point, C. Do honor what God honors. I mean, I don't know if you were as shocked as I was at verse 8 after knowing the whole story. And did David walk out of that cave and he calls Saul what? King. Lord. He calls him father a few verses later. He pays honor. He kneels and bows to him. What David is doing, he is honoring God, not Saul. Now, he is honoring God through Saul. You see that? He is acknowledging, you are the Lord's. Scott's word's coming. You are a nut. You are sinful. You are not worthy to be king. But you're the Lord's. Romans 13 is really clear. We look at God puts leaders over us. Does he put bad leaders over us sometimes? Yep, sometimes he allows us to have, you fill in the name. I was just about to say it. I'm not going to. Okay? Right? Okay, God, I don't get this. I don't understand it. I don't want to do this. But if it has a possessive, the Lord's, then I'll honor it. I'll honor it. Did it come at a great cost to David? Oh, yeah. Great cost to him. So we are called to honor our leaders, but all people. I already quoted Genesis 1.27. Imago Dei, in the image of God, God created each human. So every encounter, no matter how angry I get, how wrong they were, they are created in the image of God. And Romans 12 says we need to outdo honoring one another. So I've got to find a way to honor God, that person through that, and what that looks like. It takes me to this last do, is do live like Jesus. David lives out his faith in a difficult situation. It's not just talk. It's not just talk. You're going to see Ephesians 4, 15, a, a verse that we often quote, okay? And I put it in the amplified version. So the amplified version, what it does is it takes the original language, whether it be Hebrew or Greek, and kind of expounds on, like I told you, some complexities of when you use the original language to truly understand what Scripture is saying. Well, I've quoted it a million times. You probably have too, is speak the truth in love, right? How many of us have quoted that one? Speak the truth in love. Well, listen here, the speak in the Greek means way more than just talk. It means living it out so that you will grow and be more like Christ. Ephesians 4.15, but speaking the truth in love, and here it expounds on it, it means in all things, both our speech and our lives expressing his truth. It's not just talk. It's action. 
It says, let us grow up in all things into him, following his example, who is the head, Christ. So we are to live like Jesus. We are to live like Jesus. That to do. David exemplified godliness in this moment. We are to exemplify in all moments. And I think especially in hard moments. In hard moments, more eyes are on you. More eyes care. We are to represent Jesus and be like Jesus in this. Do what Jesus has done to us. Give mercy where it's not deserved. Give grace where it's not earned. Grant forgiveness when they are not worthy. In all times, every situation, love. Because when we do that, people don't just hear about Jesus, they experience Jesus. When you live like Jesus, people are going to have the closest encounter with Jesus. You're going to have the closest encounter with Jesus. I take you back to that sideline football game. Remember I mentioned earlier, there I stood a year before that embarrassed, sad for these high school kids and their parents and my coaches getting their faces rubbed in that you were not good on this day. And I could have exacted that same revenge. I stood there and they were begging me. Oh, were they begging me? Come on, coach. Come on, coach. And then I remembered this. I remember sitting there. Because I'm going to, can I be honest with you? Don't tell anybody, okay? It's our secret. <laughs> uh, I wanted to bad. It had been so easy. We were killing them. They couldn't stop us. And so it's called the V formation, the victory formation. That is when you say, no. Sportsmanship, I said, you go kneel it three times. That'll burn the clock. Game over. And everybody knew every down, right? Because here's why. I was a youth pastor in that town. Every single people knew that I was a follower of Jesus. It wasn't about Scott Harris. It wasn't me being a do-gooder. It was about my Lord and my Savior. I wanted them to see him in that moment. Even though I wanted to get old number nine out and ugh, right? So that competitiveness, I'm a little competitive, right? Um, but before anything else, I'm a follower of Jesus. And I knew my testimony mattered. And the kids were bummed. By about the third time we knelt, they got it. You could feel we did not do what they did. They saw something different. I believe this. They saw Jesus. Right? They saw Jesus. Um, and I think we walked away in victory when we could have walked away in defeat. Right? So we have to live like Jesus. And when we do that, we get God's result. Okay, that's what we're after, right? We want God's result. And he has a strange way of going about this. And so as we look at God's way, I want to take you to Romans 12. It'll be on the screen for you. Don't necessarily have to turn there. Uh, verses 19 through 21. We're going to see God's strange way of how he sets up um, getting his revenge. And so we don't have to. Romans 12, 19 says this. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy, I want you to really hear this, okay? You, you, you listening right now? I mean, so it just starts off, you got to hear this. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what we see here, it's a steady message. From Moses, David, Jesus, to Paul, to us, do not avenge. Do not take revenge. We're not to do this. Here's what God does. I mean, don't you wish it was instant? He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to kill them with kindness. I want you to kill them with kindness. And I tell you what, kindness is a deadly weapon to a dark heart. When they're hungry, do what? Feed them. Okay, ready? Listen, put it in context. Don't say anything out loud. Think of the person who's wronged you. Now imagine you make a, your best meal you cook and you take it to them. Ouch, right? This is what we're listening to in Scripture right now. It's a radical, radical call to be a Christian. But it does something we can't do. It changes hearts. They're thirsty. They're in need. What? Give them a drink. Kill them with kindness. It says at the end there, do not be overcome with evil, but you pour good on them. Do the exact opposite that they're doing. If you haven't picked this up, I've never said the person who has wronged you was innocent. You picked that up? Let's make this assumption right now. We are talking about guilty people. You're right, they're wrong. Because that's this situation. David was right, Saul's wrong. So we don't have to sugarcoat that. This is not, oh, I made a mistake. No, no, this is when it's ugly against you. Here's what you do. Is you hurt, heap burning coals on their head. And what that, that saying is this, it's putting burning coals on that. You say, boy, that sounds better than what I was planning. No, it's a saying, okay? Um, and what it means is that it's going to sear down into their mind and down to their heart. So your kindness you're meeting their needs, your good is going to put coals on their head and this idea and thoughts, and it's going to burn down. Versus if you respond, the fight's on. Now you're fighting about the fight, right? You did this, I did that, and here goes the battle. You're taking the fight away. Not in the fight, I'm, I'm giving you grace, mercy, forgiveness, love. I'm meeting your needs, I'm giving you kindness, I'm giving you good. Now that person has to deal with what? themselves. They can now not think about your response, but what they're doing. And you put the contrast up of Christ-like love. Not much compares to that. I hate to say it, but guilt, regret in them, really seeing the picture of what they've done. It's not about the fight anymore. God will take care of it. You and God fight. You want to fight with him? Fight with him. Not me. 
I'm going to love you. I'm going to be Jesus. And the result is this, is they will see God. They will see God. And that's the message they need. If they've wronged you, if they're in the wrong, they are sinning, who they need to talk to, who they need to understand is God. And you might be the only scripture they read in that moment by your actions. There's something better. There's something greater, something more effective than anything this world offers. And it's love. It'll take the strongest man, the hardest heart, and melt it. You can't do that. You're clever, kick back. You're stomping your foot. You walking away doesn't even hold a candle to love. God's love, which we can scarcely understand. That's why we've got to surrender to him and let it be God's result. Let's finish 1 Samuel 24. Look at when Saul has heaps of burning coals on his head. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept, his heart broken. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid my, me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you've dealt with me, dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. And this, man, don't miss this. This is a huge statement. They're all huge, but this is for the king of Israel to acknowledge this, verse 20. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. So swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. He's referencing David's power, his ability. Of course, he wants his legacy to stay. Verse 22, and David swore this to Saul. And Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. They stayed there. <laughs> he didn't trust Saul for good reason. Um, but here's the deal. David heaped burning coals on his head by acting like Christ. Saul, hard-hearted, mad Saul, had a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of action. How difficult would it have been for Saul to kill David and his 600 men? Very easy. Not only are they outnumbered, they've gotten cornered. Okay. But what did Saul do? He went home. He had to go out there and pack everybody up and say, we're leaving. Now, I know if you know the story, David, he, Saul ends up being Saul. But in this moment, the power of what God can do, God's results can change the hardest hearts, the strongest of mind, the evilest of people. God can do that. We have to allow him. So as our next step, I want to give you a couple things to think about as the worship team comes out here, and it's this. Okay, first of all, realize we've all been wronged, right? I am talking to online right here, 100% of people who have been wronged at some point 
Sometimes that wrong is measured generationally. It is deep, deep wounds from generations before that has found its way into your life, and it's hurt you deeply. It could be measured in decades or years. In your immediate life, someone may have hurt you. They have wronged you. Done horrible things to you. It could be measured recently, right? You know, you may be here alone because uh, you can't be with that person you love dearly because you're, you're, you're fighting. They've wronged you. You might be at home, you might be in here. You can't even talk to each other right now. You got here, but eyes are straight ahead because you're steaming. They have not met your expectations. They've hurt you. We all have been hurt. We've all been wronged. But there is an offering from God for us to release it, to be free. You do not have to carry it. There's somebody that loves you, loves all people, and makes a promise that he will avenge. He'll seek revenge for evil. I tell you what, he can do a lot more damage than you can do. Now his timing is different than ours. He's redeeming all stories. So versus just destroy your enemies, let God work it out. Maybe their hearts will soften. But we need to release it so that it doesn't war in your heart and your soul and destroy you and become a bitter root which defiles the whole body, Hebrews tells us. So I'm going to give us an opportunity. There's going to be some people up here for prayer. I'll be here or there. Um, there'll be people in the prayer room uh, for this. I want to give you the opportunity to release it. In this moment, Psalm 63, David writes about it, and he talks about having his hands lifted high in surrender, in praise, to say, the battle belongs to you, Lord, not me. I'm going to usher everything to you and trust you. That revenge is yours, not mine. I want to be free, fully free from the burden of anger, the burden of hate, the burden of pursuing revenge. And I want to pursue you with everything. And so I give them into your hands, Lord. I free myself from that burden. So I'm going to invite you to stand and let's just pray as we sing, the battle belongs to the Lord. Love you, Nishore.